True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. She's used to all kinds of people in her industry. Some are nice and friendly and others are just not a pleasure to work with at all. This man, though, is something else. She can feel him hovering in the room, his presence uncertain, waiting, undecided. When the first blow strikes, she's confused. Her legs collapse beneath her, and as his form looms over her, she wonders if he is the last person she'll ever see. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 117, The Murder of Beatrice Heroin. Now, it's my monthly tip about what to watch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on television. And from Monday, the 22nd of May, you can catch the first season of Murder, Fight for the Truth, telling the stories of 10 heroes who cracked the case when the odds were stacked against them. With a mix of crimes from the US and the UK, each episode focuses on one investigator who went the extra mile to ensure justice was done. Watch it weeknights at 7pm on DSTV, Channel 170, and Starsat 222, until the 2nd of June. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You. Yes, you, are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. Thank you to Janice Lombard, Simpiwe Yende, Megan Goldner, and Renal for your support on Patreon. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout out on the pod, and other exclusive contents including Q&As with me as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. The 
perpetrator in today's case is not a serial offender in practice, as far as we can tell, but in every other way, he is. Although those around him would try to convince themselves that he'd very suddenly changed completely after a surgery that went wrong, his own admissions in an interview proved that this was not the case. One of the most terrifying things about this case for me was zooming out and watching his progression and how there were so many very near misses. It made me think about how close we all are every day to those who are living out a murderous fantasy. And we simply have no idea as we move in and out of their orbit. In researching this case, I used a chapter from Profiler Diaries by Dr. Gerard Labaskachny, as well as several media articles and other documents I was able to obtain. So let's get into episode 117, The Murder of Beatrice Harrowin. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Unfortunately, there's almost no information available about the victim in this case. We know her name, her age, her occupation, and how she died. And while that is never the only information I want to present about a victim, often in serial offender-type cases, that's what we have to work with. The focus is regularly on the offenders in these types of cases. And although I believe it has a lot to do with press focus, I have had some people suggest to me that the families of these victims don't want a lot of their loved ones' information out in the public domain because they don't want them linked to a serial killer in perpetuity. I guess that may be true, but it still doesn't feel right to me that we don't even have a few sentences about who she was. There were too many almost victims in this case as well. I've decided not to use their names, although they are available to me, because I don't think it's fair to them. But I think that they are an important part of the story, all the same, because their presence just goes to show how, although we often think about people with serial murder intentions as an abstract idea, these people are very real, and we can so easily cross paths with them. What we do have in this case is quite a lot of information about the perpetrator. So that's where the main focus will have to be for now. Jose de Silva had two siblings when he was growing up, but he reported feeling very much alone for most of his life, even when he was surrounded by people. He said that his father was very abusive and beat him his siblings, and his mother. Jose recalled developing a deep hatred for his father and thinking that one day he would do something to get him back for what he'd done. 
He said that his father was one of the first people he'd had murderous fantasies about. When José was about seven years old, he said that after one particularly brutal beating, he felt himself emotionally shut down. From that point, he refused to cry or show any emotion around his father, and soon that extended to other areas of his life too. Although José says he was a very good student at school, he intentionally did not go on to study further because that was what his father wanted him to do, and he would take any opportunity he could to work against the man. José had dual citizenship as his father was Portuguese, and as such he could choose where he wanted to carry out his compulsory military service, and he chose Portugal. He would spend two years in the army there, and even attempted to live in Portugal for a while after he'd finished his conscription period, but he said he couldn't settle into the country because the culture was just too different, so he returned to South Africa. José began working at a tech installations company, and there he said his boss reminded him of his father. This man would become the second person José de Silva would fantasize about killing. In interviews he later did with police, he described how he thought it would be so easy to just, quote, whack him in the back of the head with an axe and show him who was really boss, end quote. This description of how he'd like to have killed his boss would be an eerie premonition, or perhaps a concerted carry-through of this initial fantasy. José said that he felt he'd been born with depression, something he believed he'd inherited from his mother. He'd been on antidepressants for a while, but said that they gave him headaches, so he stopped using the medication. José had a few casual relationships with women, until in 1996 he met someone he admits was the only woman he'd ever really felt anything for. José and the woman moved in together, and he said that he planned to marry her, and they were going to buy a house and have children. He said it was the first and only time in his life he'd pictured living what he calls normally. This relationship, though, ended badly. José would later say that he was too good to his partner, and she took advantage of him. This relationship, according to him, would be the last time he connected deeply with another human being. After that, José pretty much kept to himself. He described himself as a nerd and said he didn't enjoy interacting with people and he knew that his co-workers thought he was strange and irritating. For many years, he claimed to live a completely solitary life. He would go to work, go back home, eat dinner, watch television, and go to sleep. Many mornings, he said, he couldn't bring himself to get out of bed. At some point, he began to use marijuana which he said helped to self-medicate him for his depression. After breaking up with his girlfriend, he'd moved from Honeydew, where they'd lived together, to Centurion. There he lived with a friend for a while, 
but he found it difficult to share space with someone else. During this period, Jose quit his job. He said that his intense hatred for his boss was beginning to boil over and he couldn't stand looking at the man anymore. He didn't leave with much of a plan on how he would earn income, though. And soon he was completely broke and without any other options, went back to his previous employer to ask for his job back. Despite being a bit of an oddball, Jose was a good, hard-working and diligent employee, so they welcomed him back onto the team. Although he describes himself as a nerd and someone who had very sedate habits, Jose said that he'd started to notice that there were two sides to him. He described this as almost a Jekyll and Hyde situation, and his dark side would come out at night. On one night a month, he claimed, when it was full moon, his so-called naughty side would make the strongest appearance, and he couldn't sleep, and would often spend the entire nights prowling for sex workers. Whenever Jose de Silva describes his sexual tastes, he seems to go to great pains to point out that he was never into what he called any weird stuff. He would also always insist that he'd never raped a woman or done anything to a woman she hadn't consented to. This dark side to Jose de Silva seemed to continue to grow and develop over the years that followed, and in late 2000 to early 2001, he started playing what he called a little game. De Silva had moved out of his friend's house at that point and into a rented townhouse in Centurion. He says that the game started with estate agents. He would see a property advertised, phone the agent pretending to be interested, and he'd give a fake name, and Eventually, he would start to purchase burner phones for this exact purpose. He pretended to be a wealthy man who could easily qualify for some of the rather expensive properties he was approaching agents about, and he said that after the first few phone calls, he couldn't believe how easy it was to convince people that he was who he said he was. At first, the phone calls alone were enough. He'd set up appointments and often just not show up, or he'd cancel and claim he'd changed his mind. But soon, he started going to the viewings he'd set up. Again, he said it amazed him how easy it was to get these women, he only ever contacted female estate agents, to meet up with him alone. And he couldn't help but think as he walked around these often empty properties with them, how easy it would be for him to pretty much do whatever he wanted to these women. He didn't, though, he claimed, because at that point, he was getting what he wanted. What these encounters gave Jose was a feeling of control and power. With the power dynamic skewed in his favour as a fake buyer, the agents, always women, were kind, complimentary and enthusiastic to meet him. He said he always left, feeling like he was walking on clouds from the affirmation he'd received. 
and then slowly that feeling would start to fade and he'd have to do it again. He complained that estate agents became annoying because they were too persistent and inevitably every time he turned on his burner phone there were multiple messages and voicemails from agents following up on his viewings. This would start a shift in the type of industry Jose targeted for his game, and soon he began to think that interior decorators would be a good idea instead, because it might be easier to put them off when he'd had enough. Although Jose says that this was the reason for the shift, I wonder about that. Around the time that he shifted to contacting interior decorators, he'd moved into his own place. So, while before he had to meet the agents at other places, now he could bring his targets into his own home. And in order to do that, the home had to be part of the transaction. So interior decorators seemed ideal. I also think that the shift was possibly part of his progression as a criminal. By his own admission, he'd now seen how easy it was to get a woman alone under false pretenses, and perhaps, although he initially claimed it was never his intention to hurt anyone, he recognized that being in his own environment with these women was far more conducive to what he may have in mind as his next steps. During this time, Jose was still seeing sex workers regularly. He said that he never wanted to have sex with them in his car or somewhere public, so he would always bring them back to his house. He said he specifically chose sex workers who worked on the street and not from an agency because they charged much cheaper rates and were far more open to doing whatever he wanted. And although he said that that was about money, I think it is, again, far more about power and control. By choosing women who were working in the most unregulated and unsafe forms of sex work, he had far more power over them. They were at his mercy, in his home, and they would have known it. So it's very likely they would have gone to great lengths to keep him happy. While his mental health definitely seemed to be deteriorating, Jose's physical health didn't seem much better. In June 2001, he had to undergo a venous bypass. A venous bypass is surgery that improves the blood flow to your veins. During the surgery, a surgeon may use a healthy vein to make a new path around the part of your vein that isn't working but Jose's surgery didn't run smoothly, and he had to be put into an induced coma for three days. When he got out of hospital, he said that his life quickly cascaded downhill. He felt that no woman would ever want him with the scars he had, and because he had to wear a compression stocking on his leg. Jose began to pick up weight, and the worse he felt physically, the worse his depression became too. After an appointment with his specialist one day, the doctor recommended he see a psychiatrist. 
Josiah said up until that point, he'd avoided therapy of any kind because he didn't really see the point in it. But he was starting to feel a darkness overtaking him. And he thought it might be interesting to talk to someone who might be able to give him some insights into what was happening in his head. He would later admit that it wasn't that he really wanted help with controlling his dark urges. Rather, his hope for what he would get out of therapy was far more superficial. He wanted a therapist to teach him how to stand up to people like his boss and make them feel as small as they made others feel. He said that he admired people who were able to hit back verbally when they were insulted or offended, and he'd never been able to do that. He felt that this would make him feel much more in control and powerful in his own life. The psychiatrist that Jose saw took a few sessions to decide that her area of expertise was not the right fit for him. Now, Jose claims that the doctor had said that his condition was far too severe for her to treat, but I think that this may be a bit of his own delusion. When he spoke of this point in his treatment, it would have been in his best interest to, to present his mental state at that time as being extremely erratic and severe, untreatable even. But in my opinion, it's highly unlikely that this would have been the reason for the psychiatrist to refer him elsewhere. The doctor actually referred him to a psychologist. And I think, and this is really just my own unsubstantiated opinion, that perhaps she'd recognize that what ailed Jose was not a condition she could treat with medication. This is, of course, one of the main differences between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. The former can prescribe medication, and the latter uses other tools, such as talk therapy and the like, to treat patients. If Jose's psychiatrist couldn't diagnose him with any mental health condition, which was medically treatable, and she felt that his issues were more related perhaps a personality disorder, or even just his childhood trauma, that would be a very good reason for her to refer him to a psychologist. Jose himself would admit that he was never completely honest with any of the mental health professionals he interacted with. He didn't tell any of them that he was having dark thoughts about doing very bad things to people, and rather, he focused on trying to learn the tools he wanted to present as a more powerful person in, in interactions with others. Jose would later claim that he'd planned to admit his murderous thoughts to his psychologist at some point, but this would not happen, at least not until it was too late. And... His next interaction with a psychologist would be in a very different context. Jose's friends and colleagues would later say that they did notice a stark change in Jose after his operation. He seemed more withdrawn than normal, but they put it down to him recovering from major physical trauma. Jose, though, would later claim that the surgery had activated what he called his dual personalities. This Jekyll and Hyde idea he had of himself became more of a permanent feature in his life. And he started to live 
for the darker things he did, and his game with interior decorators became more serious, when on the 2nd of November, he invited a woman to his home for the first time. Although there would later be several estate agents who testified to picking up strange vibes from José de Silva, I think that the first interior decorator he invited to his home provides some essential clues about the truth behind his eventual crime. The woman received a call from a man calling himself Lionel Monty. He said that he'd just moved into a new house that he'd purchased and he wanted to see about getting it professionally decorated. An appointment was set for the 2nd of November, but the woman said that the minute she set eyes on the man calling himself Lionel Monty, she felt uneasy. That feeling did not fade as she walked through the very modest townhouse. The man, she said, very simply gave her the creeps. He hovered too close to her, and told her that she had nice feet, which she found very odd and unprofessional. When she entered his ensuite bathroom and spotted a hammer on the shelf, she decided that the appointment was over. She made her excuses and told him she'd seen everything she needed to. He seemed a little taken aback and tried to convince her that he still had more to show her, but she walked straight to the front door, walked out, and didn't look back. She never did send the man's quote, and she never heard from him again. The man, of course, was José de Silva. José himself would later say he liked this woman because she'd been nice to him. He hadn't understood why she'd rushed out so suddenly, but he hadn't thought much of it again. There would be other appointments with interior decorators in the days that followed. Some José cancelled, others he went through with, and quotes were sent. Of course, he could never have afforded any of these services, he admitted. It was all way beyond his means. But he would always pay the consultation fees, he said, as though this somehow made his odd little game any less strange. Then, on the 16th of November 2001, José walked into an interior design agency in Santon. The receptionist there would take his details and arranged for one of their interior decorators, 47-year-old Beatrice Harrowin, to meet José at his home on the 20th of November. The receptionist took down the cell phone number José offered, as well as the name, Anthony Ferreira. Beatrice Harrowin received the appointment's information from the receptionist and diarised it. On the 19th of November, she finished up at the office and then headed to a friend's house for dinner. She left there, headed home, and this was the last time she was ever seen alive. We know that Beatrice did get home that night, and she slept at home and woke up the next morning. She took a chicken out for her dinner that night and left it on the kitchen counter to defrost. She had an early appointment booked with one Anthony Ferreira, and as she left her house, 
that is where she was headed. Her cell phone records would later show that she'd called Anthony Ferreira's number several times that morning as she drove. Perhaps she'd been struggling to get hold of him. Within hours, her cell phone was powered off, and that was the end of Beatrice's digital trail at that point. By the 22nd of November, Beatrice's friends were getting worried about her. She hadn't arrived for work in two days. Her cell phone was off, and her house was locked up. One of her friends would open a missing persons report later that day. Officers accompanied Beatrice's friend to the missing woman's home as part of the early phase of the investigation. There they found her home locked, the alarm set, and the chicken that had been taken out to defrost on the kitchen counter still there, now starting to smell less than appetizing. It looked as though Beatrice had had every intention of returning home when she'd left on the morning of the 20th, so police realized they now had to figure out why she hadn't. Soon a chain of events would be set in place that would reveal the reason Beatrice had never returned home. On the 23rd of November 2001 at 5am, Dr. Gerard Labaskakni received a call-out to a crime scene. He'd recently joined the SAPS and was heading up the investigative psychology section. This would be the first crime scene he'd been called out to. He'd seen dead bodies before, but that was when he worked as a medic during his army service, and he explains in his book Profiler Diaries that the body of a person who's died in a hospital environment is very different from seeing the body of a person who's died a violent death by murder. When Dr. Labaskakni arrived at the scene on the N14 highway that morning, dawn was just breaking. He was greeted by Senior Superintendent Leonie Russ, who was working forensics on the scene. She decided to call him and his colleague in the IPS, Almarie Myberg, because Russ was an extremely experienced officer. And she knew, with one look at the scene, that this was not an ordinary crime. The victim, a white female, was completely naked except for her bra. She was lying face down on the tarred road, just off the edge. She had been discovered by a passing motorist, who said the body was so close to the edge of the road he'd almost driven over her. The woman's face was partially wrapped in brown packing tape, and the back of her head showed visible blunt force trauma wounds which had penetrated her scalp. Despite her being mostly naked, there was no evidence of sexual assault. One thing immediately struck Dr. Labaskakni, though. The wounds the victim had sustained were deep and would have caused severe bleeding. But her body was perfectly clean. There was not a drop of blood on her. Even her white bra was clean. She looked as though she'd actually been scrubbed down. Another thing that Dr. Labaskakni noticed was the location of the body. 
the woman was in very clear view. On the side of the road, there was a stretch of dense bushland and even a deep ditch. If the killer had just gone slightly further in, it was likely the woman's body would not have been discovered for a very long time, if ever. But instead he'd chosen to leave her there, where she really couldn't be missed. From these aspects, Labaskakni drew two early conclusions about the killer. Firstly, he was a meticulous man, who clearly didn't like mess. And secondly, the killer had wanted her to be found. The question was, did he want her to be found because he felt guilty about what he'd done, or because he wanted to be able to gloat when the murder made headlines? Labaskakni was leaning toward the former reason, but only time would tell. The woman's body was taken to the mortuary in preparation for an autopsy. The discovery did make headlines, and later that morning, while she was driving to work, Beatrice Harrowin's friend, who'd just reported her missing the day before, heard the news report about the discovery on the radio. As soon as she got to work, she called the police station she'd opened the case with and asked if it was possible that the victim was Beatrice. Within hours, the woman was called to the mortuary to identify the body. And to her horror, she discovered that the body that had been found on the side of the road was indeed her friend, Beatrice Harrowin. Detective Warrant Officer Pine Pinar was already a seasoned detective by the time he was appointed as investigating officer on the murder of Beatrice Harrowin. The man who is now retired is one of the old-school detectives who learned to solve crime when the tools available to him were minimal and not particularly high-tech. So as more and more tools were added to his armory, although he embraced them, Pinar was never afraid of hard detective work, and this would make all the difference in solving this crime. With the victim's name, Pinar had a solid starting point. He began to delve into Beatrice Harrowin's life, discover who she'd been and what she'd done in her last days on earth. Most importantly, he wanted to know who she had been in contact with. To figure this out, he went to her phone records. Now, although this procedure is only slightly faster today, in 2001, the process of submitting a Section 205 subpoena for phone records and then waiting for the phone company to actually process the request took at least seven days. While that may not sound like an inordinately long amount of time, in a murder investigation, it may as well be a decade because there could be vital information hidden among those numbers, and until Pinar had it in his hands, the killer was given more and more time to get further and further away, if that's what they wanted to do. Of course, while he waited for that, there were other avenues to explore. Pinar interviewed friends, family and colleagues of Beatrice's, and when he spoke with the receptionist at the company she'd worked at, the woman gave him a piece of very important information. She told him that on the day that Beatrice seemed to have disappeared, 
she was scheduled to meet a new client. Pinar was given the name Anthony Ferreira, and a cell phone number, and another number, another number he now had to submit a section 205 for, and wait another week for. He, of course, tried calling the number, but the phone was off, and a search for the relatively common name brought up far too many options, and he had nothing yet to narrow it down. When Beatrice's phone records finally came back, Pinar was able to confirm that the last number called from her phone was that of the man who'd called himself Anthony Ferreira. So the search had narrowed. This man was now a serious person of interest. After what felt like an age, the phone company eventually furnished Pine with call records for the number he'd given them. The first thing he noticed was that the number was a pay-as-you-go. This was a time before we had to reeker numbers to our identity, and that often meant criminals mistakenly thought that these pay-as-you-go phones made them untraceable. But call records could still be pulled for pay-as-you-go numbers, and the numbers on those records were a collection of breadcrumbs that, when followed, would often lead to the identity of the person using the phone. Detective Pinar would eventually trawl through thousands of telephone numbers across this investigation. He did so manually, with his brain power, his highlighter, a pen and a phone. Each number was called. He'd identify himself and ask the person on the other end to identify themselves. Then he would ask them if they knew a person with the number he was investigating. Sometimes the people who answered would have to write the number down and search their phones to figure out who the number belonged to. But the arduous process eventually began to produce results. Pinar soon noticed a pattern. Almost all of the numbers called from the phone belonged to either estate agents or interior decorators. Almost all were women. Some did not remember engaging with the person who'd called them from that number, but many did, and they started to provide Pinar with other names. Some knew the man as Anthony Ferreira, as Beatrice had. Others called him Lionel Monty, and a few had actually met the man. These people were asked to come into the police station and sit with a forensic artist to draw up an identicate of the man they'd met. It soon became clear that the man who Beatrice had last met with had been setting up appointments with female estate agents and interior decorators for some time. He never actually used any of their services, and many of the women described him as strange or creepy. Pinar noticed that around the time of Beatrice's disappearance, activity on the phone stopped for five days. Then, on the 25th of November, it had started up again, and the calls were to estate agents and interior decorators. Pinar feared that if he didn't catch the man fast, he would have more victims on his hands. While tracking these calls almost in real time, with no luck in securing his man, 
Pinar called one number that had been called early in December and was surprised when a man answered. He asked his standard questions, and the man on the other end said that the person who'd used that number had sold him a cell phone on the 8th of December 2001. He said he'd responded to an advert in the junk mail and purchased the cell phone for 400 rand from a man who called himself James Oliver. Unfortunately, he said, he no longer had the phone, as his son had taken it to a cinema and lost it there. Pinar strongly believed that the phone had belonged to Beatrice Harrowin, and if he could trace the sale backward, he could tie it to the killer. So on the 26th of December, Pinar went to the cinema that the phone had been misplaced at. He asked staff if anyone had found a phone there, and eventually, after explaining that the phone was evidence in a murder, the projectionist that had worked for the cinema admitted he had found the phone and kept it. He handed it over to Pinar. Pinar was able to confirm that this was indeed the victim's phone, and the man who'd purchased the phone looked at the identical that had been drawn up by the other would-be victims and confirmed it was the same man who'd sold him the phone. Pinar was stitching together the fabric of this crime. He could tie all the pseudonyms to the same identity, and he could tie that identity to the victim's phone and to the last number she'd called. The only thing he didn't know was the real name of the man in the identicate. While the recovery of Beatrice's phone was happening, something else was afoot. The unidentified man had made contact with another estate agent. And then, as soon as Pinar was alerted to this new call, he too called the estate agent and explained to what must have been a completely shocked woman on the other end that she was in an immense amount of danger and she should definitely not see the man who called her on her own, but she could help to solve a murder. Detective Pinar asked if the woman would help him to set a trap for the man who'd called her, and she agreed. On the 5th of January 2002, she called the number and left a voicemail. The man called back on the 7th of January, and they made an appointment for the next day. But on the morning of the appointment, he called to cancel. Pinar was deflated, but certainly not defeated. And as he considered his next move, he got the call that would be the gold in his investigation. The interior decorator I referred to earlier who had gone to the house of the man who called himself Lionel Monty and got such a bad vibe from him and then fled after seeing the hammer in the ensuite bathroom, called Detective Pinar. She'd been one of the numbers he'd initially phoned, but he hadn't been able to get hold of her, and he'd left a voicemail. The woman had initially thought it was a wrong number, because surely she had nothing to do with a murder investigation. But then she'd heard about the murder of fellow interior designer Beatrice Harrowin and the pieces had started to fit together. 
The woman gave a statement to police describing her experience with the man who'd gone by the name Lionel Monty. When she was shown the identikit, she confirmed it was definitely the same man. And, she said, although she didn't remember the exact address, she could definitely take officers to the complex where the man lived. And she did. The woman was able to identify the unit she'd gone to that day, and with that information, Pinar was able to determine the name of the person living there. 37-year-old Jose de Silva. When Jose de Silva fell asleep on his couch after smoking a joint on the night of the 8th of January 2002, he very likely didn't expect to wake up to the faces of two police officers looking down at him. In his haze, he'd left his security gate unlocked, as well as his door. So when there was no response to their knocking, because De Silva was seemingly so out of it, Pine Pinar and his partner had made entrance to the home and found Jose asleep on the couch. If Pine Pinar had expected a resistant and angry suspect, that was not what he found that night. After he'd gotten over the initial shock of finding two policemen in his previously empty lounge, Jose de Silva was quite cooperative. He told Pinar where to find the phone he'd been using, which was in a blue cooler box in the garage. Police would eventually recover 27 prepaid SIM cards and seven cell phones from de Silva's home. Pinar confirmed that this was the number he'd been investigating by simply turning the phone on, dialing the number, and watching it ring in his hands. They had their man. Also in the garage, Detective Pinar identified an axe, which he believed could have caused the injuries to Beatrice Harrowin's head. De Silva would later confirm that this was correct. Although he was cooperative, De Silva seemed to take an instant dislike to Pine Pinar. He would later say that this was because he felt the man was not dressed professionally. That night, Dr. Gerard Labaskachny was on his couch at home when he got the call to say that a suspect had been arrested in the murder of Beatrice Harrowin. He was asked to come out and interview the suspect. Going on his instincts that he gathered from the cleanliness of the body, Labaskachny dressed for what he believed was going to be a man who appreciated meticulousness. And he was 100% correct. When he arrived, De Silva immediately connected with him, and he agreed to speak with him. The interview would take place in De Silva's ensuite bathroom, and it would emerge that this had been where Beatrice Harrowin had been murdered. Over the next few hours, De Silva gave Labaskachny background to his childhood and the build-up to the murder of Beatrice. De Silva explained that Beatrice had arrived at his home as arranged on the morning of the 20th. He said they'd walked through the house, but he'd taken an immediate dislike to the woman because she seemed to be looking down on him and critical of his home and its furnishings. She seemed incredulous that he would want an interior decorator to work on such a mundane house, he said. 
He claimed that when the woman had made a negative comment about his cushions, that had been the last straw, and he'd become enraged and struck her once in the back of the head with the axe handle. He claimed that once he'd done that, he felt he had no choice but to kill her because she would undoubtedly go to police. He'd bound Beatrice with cable ties that he used for his work. During the autopsy, cuts had been found on her hands and feet which had made the pathologist suspect that the victim had been tied up in some way. De Silva explained that he'd then decided to kill Beatrice with two further blows to the back of her head with the axe. He'd done this in the bathroom to ensure that the clean-up would be easier. After she was dead, he'd cut her clothing off her body, except for her bra, and wrapped her head with packing tape because he didn't want to see her face. He said that he'd kept Beatrice's body there for two days until she'd started to give off an odour. In a pretty cold remark, he told Dr. Labaskakni with an expression of victimhood how he'd even had to tell his domestic worker not to come into work when he had a lot of washing for her to do because he couldn't let her see the body in the bath. Almost without fail, De Silva blamed Beatrice for her own death. He continued to say that if she'd just been nice to him like all the others, then he wouldn't have gotten angry with her and hit her, and then he wouldn't have had to kill her. On Dr. Gerard Labaskakni's podcast, Profiler Africa, he discusses this case, and that episode includes excerpts of his interview with De Silva, so when you're done with this episode, you should definitely check that out for his first-hand account. De Silva did a pointing out of the scene where he'd left Beatrice's body, and he was arrested and charged with her murder. Although he presented as quite meek, mild and cooperative during his arrest and interview with Dr. Labaskakni, by the time he got to trial, he'd done the same about turn that most offenders like him do. He pled not guilty, and was quite arrogant and unhelpful in court. Despite speaking perfect English, as the recording of his interview attests, De Silva insisted on having a Portuguese interpreter available to him throughout the court proceedings. He also made some interesting statements in court, including claiming that he was actually playing a game with police all along, and he'd actually planned to get caught. Additionally, he claimed that he didn't hand himself over to police because his taxes paid their salaries, and it was their job to catch him. He said he was quite annoyed that it had taken them so long to arrest him. He said he was getting ready to kill another victim, and that would have been on their heads if it had happened. De Silva's reason for pleading not guilty, in other words, his defense, soon became clear when his attorney began to introduce evidence that pointed to a mental health defense. Jose De Silva would claim that when he was in a coma after his surgery, he developed multiple personalities, and after that, he'd heard voices in his head telling him to become a serial killer. As a result of this turn of events, De Silva had to be sent for a 30-day mental health assessment which was returned 
with no mental health conditions having been found, which may have contributed to his crime, and that he was capable of acting in his own defence. At the end of this 30-day delay, the judge was ready to pass down judgment. He found José de Silva guilty of murder and robbery. De Silva's abusive childhood was, of course, raised during mitigation, and Dr. Labaskakni presented evidence that, although de Silva had only managed to kill one victim, his actions, planning, escalation, and his own admissions proved that he was entirely capable of becoming a serial offender, and he recommended that he should be sentenced as such, and this should be taken into account when he was considered for parole. The judge didn't quite seem to grasp the psychological motives behind the crime, if we look at his comments when he passed down sentence, though. Although he sentenced De Silva to life, plus 18 years, he mentioned that he believed the motive for the crime was robbery. This seemed quite odd to me, and points to him perhaps not completely accepting that De Silva was indeed capable of becoming a serial murderer, and it's concerning that a parole board may look at it the same way. In 2006, De Silva appealed his sentence, and failed in that appeal. Sometime after De Silva started serving his sentence, Dr. Labaskakni was on a course with a seasoned detective, Kenneth Speed, from the Western Cape. Labaskakni presented De Silva's case to the course that day, and Speed approached him afterwards and told him that they had a series of crimes related to real estate agents in the Western Cape, and he wondered if De Silva knew anything about it. The two men decided to go ask De Silva in person. The man had also been briefly considered for another unsolved series in Kaoting, where several sex workers had been killed. His DNA was compared to the evidence in that case, and he was found not to be a match. When Speed and Labaskakni arrived at the prison that day, they were thankfully dressed for the course they'd just attended, so they wore collared shirts and ties. De Silva agreed to speak with the men and commented on their professional appearance. He claimed not to remember Dr. Labaskakni, which seemed unlikely considering what a huge role he'd played in his case. But again, that could just be De Silva taking back some power and control. The man said he had no knowledge of the cases in the Western Cape and had never spent any significant time there, according to him. De Silva has never been conclusively linked to any other crimes. He will become eligible for parole in 2027. Yes, in just four years' time. He will be 62 years old at that time. The true terror of this case for me, besides De Silva's coldness and victim-blaming, is how many victims he had in his clutches so easily, almost on a daily basis. There are many industries where women in particular are regularly in a dangerous situation, and this danger often spreads to men too. We saw how the Krugersdorp killers, for instance, 
targeted both male and female professionals indiscriminately. There are, of course, things that can be done to protect ourselves in certain situations, but for professionals like Beatrice, who have to go to people's houses to carry out their jobs and can't always take a colleague with, it becomes more tricky. In such cases, it may be helpful to have a check-in buddy as you go into an appointment with a new client, then again halfway through, and then as you're safely leaving with a shared live location on WhatsApp. Of course, Beatrice didn't have access to things like that when she arrived at the home of Jose de Silva that morning, and there's absolutely no reason why she should have had to. Jose de Silva would like you to think that Beatrice played some role in her own death because she didn't stroke his ego the way he would have liked. And... I don't even have to be in your head to know that you feel the same way about that as I do. It's absolute bull. It's a cop-out, because he's a weak coward, who wanted to get his power and control from murder, rather than actually showing up in his own life and making the best of what he had. I can't even imagine how the woman who had such close calls with De Silva must have felt when they discovered what they'd so narrowly escaped. Something like that can have life-changing consequences, and I have no doubt a few of those women reconsidered their careers after that. If anything, hopefully the loss of Beatrice inspired a few women to share tips on self-protection among their colleagues so that no other predator like De Silva can have such easy access to working professionals again. Beatrice Heroin, rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.